Amen. It's good to be with you this evening. Again, my name is Ethan Smith. I'm the pastor at Hope Presbyterian along with David Speakman. We send our greetings. My wife and my two girls, they're four and seven, they send their greetings too. Uh, I asked them if they wanted to come, and my daughters were watching Santa Paws 3. So they declined, and here I am by myself tonight. Uh, Our passage might be very familiar to you, or it might not be familiar at all. Um, But I'm incredibly humbled and honored to be bringing you the word tonight. If you heard that little phrase in there, born again, maybe you heard that at some point in your life. Um, I don't know where you come from, what your story is. If you were raised in the church, you might have grown up in a a church where you heard that word word every week, to be born again, right? To come forward, come to the altar, come accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you Uh, became familiar with that uh, when you were watching a football game and you saw a guy hold up a sign that said John 3.16 or Tim Tebow with the eye black and you thought, what is that all about? And you looked it up and you saw uh, this passage here about salvation, being born again. Uh, Maybe, you know, you you might have walked through a city or college campus and seen somebody on the the, uh, sidewalk there with a bullhorn and a, a sign that says, Turn or Burn. And that's all you know about this passage, John 3.16. I did my undergrad at Florida State. I hear there's some Florida fans in here, so uh, permit me uh, to, to continue to, to preach to you tonight. Florida fans don't normally listen to Florida State fans, so bear with me. I went to Florida State. Florida State has a beautiful campus, much to what these folks will tell you. Um, and on the campus, there's red brick all around. There's uh, lots of green space. There's trees. There's a big quad, kind of like you see at Wake Forest. There's a big quad in front of the uh, library there. I didn't go much into the library, but I did go on the quad there because there was a lot of playing going around, going uh, going on. There was a lot of uh, lounging, uh, a lot of fellowship with fellow students and with teachers. Um, but one place that most folks didn't go at Florida State was uh, just outside of the union, the student union there. There always seemed to be a street preacher. And that in itself is not a bad thing, but the street preacher there was really argumentative. He liked to debate people uh, coming to and from class and through the union. Uh, He loved to tell women that their skirts were too short. He loved to tell frat guys that they were going to hell for their partying. Uh, And so, as you can imagine, I avoided going by the street preacher uh, as much as I could. Maybe you've experienced something like that, and so you read this passage, and and it takes you back to a time where uh, born again for you is not a pleasant thing. It's associated with uh, a a culture that you want nothing to do with. And the funny thing about that is that Jesus turns that culture on its head, Uh, and hopefully that's what we'll see here this morning. Jesus doesn't have a bullhorn. He doesn't come in condemnation. But he comes to save. And the wonderful news of the gospel is that the God who says that we must be born again is the same God who gives us that eternal life. Which means that in order for us to access that eternal life, that deep lasting life, as one theologian puts it, all we have to do is simply trust. All we have to do is trust. So our passage shows us that because God himself is our Savior... We are called to simply trust him. And if you're a note taker, uh, I'll give you three points. My wife's a note taker. She needs to know, you know where the guardrails all are, where we're going, when we're going to come in for a landing. 
Uh, first, we'll talk about trusting the Spirit's power, and we'll talk about trusting the Son's work. And then finally, we'll, we'll talk about trusting the Father's love. So first, Jesus shows us that we must simply trust the Spirit's power. Now, we began uh, this evening that reading from John 3, and our story uh, begins actually a little bit before that. If we were to dip into the end of chapter 2, we'd get a little bit more context. Jesus was there in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover feast, that time where they celebrated uh, when Moses brought God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And uh, so Jesus is there in Jerusalem at this time, and many people start to believe in him. He's doing signs and wonders. Austin preached last week on uh, the wedding at Cana, where he turned water into wine. Uh, And so many people saw this happening, and started to trust this miracle worker, Jesus. We also learn at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus knew for many people that that was a superficial faith. And so it says that he himself, verse 25, chapter 2, he himself, Jesus, knew what was in man. And then in chapter 3 it begins, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. So this man, Nicodemus, had either heard about or seen with his own eyes some of these signs that Jesus was performing. And he was curious. Which is interesting because Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. As it says, he was a a great teacher, probably wealthy. And he was a Pharisee, and so he had a strict moral code that he lived by. So he was the elite of the elite in that culture. And yet here he is coming to see Jesus at night under the cover of darkness. And he says, Rabbi, we've seen the signs you're doing. You're clearly a teacher come from God. But Jesus doesn't respond the way that we think he might respond. He doesn't respond with, with a bullhorn. doesn't respond with, with condemnation because Nicodemus doesn't get it right. But, but he does turn the conversation on its head. And as he does with many questions from the religious elite, Jesus knows what's in their heart. That's what we found, about, found out about in chapter 2. He knows what's in their heart. And so, why was Nicodemus really coming? We could probably call Nicodemus the, the rich old ruler. There's a rich young ruler elsewhere in the Gospels who came to Jesus and said, What must I do to inherit eternal life. And and this is really what Nicodemus is getting at here. And so Jesus doesn't even answer uh, Nicodemus' first statement. He actually turns it on his head. Now how would you answer that question tonight? What must I do to see the kingdom of God? What must I do to be right with maker of all things? Maybe maybe put it in, in our Bible Belt culture. How do I get to heaven when I die? What would you say? And some of you, I, I, I won't presume that you would even ask that question. And, and maybe in your heart of hearts, you're even thinking heaven's just this made up place for people who just want some kind of comfort when their loved ones die. But I would wager if I were a better man that, that even you, if you're skeptical in your seat right now, you have some sense of what's going to happen to me after I die. Ecclesiastes says that eternity is in our hearts. That means that we have this deep longing, this, this inward desire 
for eternity. How can I be right with God? How can I inherit eternal life? You may have followed with some uh, interest this past week the uh, Senate debate, or the, the Senate race, excuse me, the election in Alabama between uh, Democrat Doug Jones and Republican Roy Moore. I'm not going to get into any kind of political debate, but what's interesting is that uh, the Republican Roy Moore, he tried to establish himself as the uh, defender of religious freedom and, and moral integrity, and so his political campaign was based on how he was basically the, the candidate on God's side. And uh, I saw one of his campaign ads, and it began with a woman saying, Roy Moore is a man with character. And so maybe this is how we think we need to be right with God. With our campaign speech, we need to come to him as the best candidate. God, look who I am and what I've done. Surely I will inherit eternal life. Pick me. I'm the best candidate. Maybe we don't think those exact words, but we function like eternal life is given to the spiritual or moral or, or intellectually elite. But Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the thing about being a born again is it's not something that you can drum up for yourself. It's not something that you can achieve through moral perfection or intellectual sophistication it's given that's the point here it's given it's a mysterious and powerful gift of the spirit and jesus says that the spirit is like the wind we don't know where it's coming from or where it's going right i lived in scotland for three years if you've ever been over to the uk you know that wind's very powerful you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going it's unpredictable it's powerful That's what the Spirit's like. That's why Jesus says that it it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get to heaven. Why? Because the kingdom of God is for the poor. The poor in spirit. Those who acknowledge that they're needy and weak. And the rich and religious are self-sufficient. They're independent. They seemingly have life figured out. So they trust in themselves and they think they're strong and they're powerful. Notice Nicodemus uses that word can several times here in verse four. He says, how can a man be born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And then verse nine, he says, how can these things be? In the the original language, that word is dunamis, the word we get dynamite from. Power, strength, it's ability. But Jesus is saying that you can't get, you can't see the kingdom of God under your own power. Just like you, you couldn't control your first birth, you can't control being born again. You could say the, print, the, the sinner's prayer ten times. You can join five Bible studies. Surround yourself with Christian music, Christian movies, Christian clothing even. You can hang out with only your church friends. You can swear off partying. You can be ordained as a pastor, even. That doesn't get me eternal life, though. It doesn't get you eternal life. You need more than that. I need more than that. We need a new heart. That's what Jesus is saying. Something only the Spirit can give. So Rudolf Bultmann said, Rebirth means something more than an improvement in man. It means that man receives a new origin. 
And this is manifestly something which he cannot give himself. And I heard one pastor say it's like having an apple orchard. Love apples. And so this illustration was hard for me. But imagine if you had an apple orchard and you wanted to change that orchard to a, a peach orchard. Uh, and in order to do that, you thought, well, maybe I'll just fertilize this, this apple orchard better. Maybe I'll just fertilize it more. But then you realize, no, you just probably get bigger and better apples, right? So you say, well, I, I need to cut off those branches. I need to prune that back. I need to get rid of those apples. Then as with pruning, you find out what? You're probably going to get more apples in due time. That's what the Spirit needs to do, is plant a new seed, right? Plant a new seed within us. Peter says that seed that God plants in us by His Spirit is imperishable. And that's what we need. We need a new motivation. We need a new desire. And we get that from the Spirit. So what does that mean for us? It means that we can stop pretending that we're strong and we can come to God in our weakness because we're all weak, right? Jesus knows what's in our heart. He knows what's in our heart. And like the prophet Jeremiah said, our heart is deceitful above all things. Our heart is desperately unrighteous. Jesus knows that. And that's why he needs to change our hearts. All of us without exception Even Nicodemus here, the elite of the elite. And that's why the Spirit has to move in power. The Christmas carol goes, He knows our need to our weakness is no stranger. I don't know what your story is, but I know mine. And I know I'm I'm very weak and I'm very needy. I don't love my wife as well as I should. I don't love my children half as well as I should. Far too often do I neglect them when I'm on my iPhone, right? I struggle with anxiety. Austin was talking about that earlier. I struggle with with my fear of what people think of me. Even right now. What do you all think of me, right? I struggle with these things. I'm weak. I'm needy. I don't need a a 10-step program to get me into theological or moral shape. That might make me look better on the outside. I need a new heart, right? I need the Spirit to work and work and work and press and press and press inside me until I want God more than all these other things. And so Jesus says, you can't do these things, Nicodemus. Will you trust my spirit instead? And second, we see that we are called to trust the spirits, excuse me, the son's work. Like I said, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of God's word. In verse 10, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. It's kind of a big deal. Right? Ron Burgundy, an anchor man, where he says, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm important. I got many leather bound books, right? That's Nicodemus. He's got many leather bound books. But he struggled with, with these spiritual concepts that Jesus was talking about here. He says, How can these things be? And Jesus said, Look, you're getting hung up on the physical, you're getting up, hung up on the earthly things, but I'm speaking of something even greater, something no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has even conceived. And so he reminds Nicodemus of the story of Moses. And you don't have to turn there right now, but in Numbers 21, which you can check out later this week, Numbers is one of those books we rarely go in, right? Check out the story in Numbers 21 at some point. 
Basically, God led Moses to lead the people, right, out of Egypt. We talked about that earlier. That's why they celebrated the Passover. During that time, when they were out in the wilderness, in the desert, they needed food, of course, right? And so God provided them manna from heaven, and they needed water, so he provided them water from a rock. But after a while, they complained. They said, were we really brought out of Egypt for this? Okay, 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 we were slaves in Egypt. I get that, Moses. I get that. God, but it wasn't so bad. We had pretty good food back there in Egypt. So their ungrateful hearts were were kindling the anger of the Lord. And and the Lord sent fiery serpents. Kids, pay attention. This is a pretty cool story in Numbers 21. The Lord sent these fiery serpents to strike the people, and some of them died. And so they repented. They said, Lord, we were wrong for our ungrateful attitudes, right? Will you come and save us? And so what did the Lord do in order to save them? He had Moses fashion this symbol. He took a bronze serpent, not a real serpent, of course, but a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, held it up. And the Lord said, anytime someone looks to that pole, they will be healed. Anytime someone looks on that serpent, that bronze serpent, they will be healed. So Jesus is saying the earthly sign of that bronze serpent Serpent pointed toward something much greater. He said in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So we've seen how Jesus can perform signs and wonders. We've seen how his teaching is powerful. He has authority, but ultimately a trust is not in him as miracle worker, as teacher, as prophet. We don't simply need moral lessons or life advice. We need to be healed. And that healing is more than physical. The the people in the desert experience physical healing. Jesus, the lifted up one, he offers us eternal healing. That's why he went to the cross. So deep lasting life doesn't just begin when we die. It begins here and now when we look to Jesus. Not only has he been lifted up for our sins... But he has also given us his righteousness. Just as that bronze serpent in the the desert carried no venom, Jesus carried no sins. He was perfectly obedient to the Father on our behalf. And when, when we look to him, he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. Isn't that incredible? He takes our curse and gives us his blessing. He takes our death and gives us his Resurrection, And all we have to do is simply trust, simply look to Jesus. And I say simply not because it's insignificant, but because that's all it takes. But at the same time, the reality is that there are so many things around us that prevent us from, from looking to the lifted up one. Right? Things that compete for our attention. So imagine, if you will, running a marathon. Okay, I, I'm sure we have... Some running enthusiasts here. That's not me. And I'm sure there are some people in here that have like stickers on their, their car that say 0.0, right? They've never run anything. But, but there are some running enthusiasts here. And if you've ever run a marathon or a 5K or whatever, if you haven't, just bear with me, okay? Just, just imagine if you can. And it'll be a stretch. But So you've trained for months and months for this marathon, right? And so you go to run the marathon, and uh, along the way, though, you begin to feel the weight of fatigue, right? You start to feel 
heavy, tired. And just off the path to your left, just off the path, is this nice, big, plush, king-sized bed. Just call in your name. Come on, come rest. Come rest. Or maybe just a little further up the road, you see off on this side, you see a big table. You, you start to feel the weight of your hunger, and you see this table on the side with a feast. Nice medium steak, baked potato, veggies, cheesecake. Maybe you, you keep running. Off on this side, you feel the weight of your thirst, right? And so there's the bar. Bartender's going to serve up whatever you want. There's the game on the TV. It's just calling your name. Come on. Distractions and enticements take our eyes off the prize, right? It takes our eyes off the end, the end goal, which is Christ himself. That's why we look to him. Finishing the race doesn't seem so easy anymore when we feel those weights. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. So as we trust him, as we look to him, not only... Do those weights fall around us? But our trust is in the one who ran that race for us already. We know he is one. And that's why we can look to him. That's why we can not grow weary and faint-hearted. That's what Jesus was calling Nicodemus to do. Not just laying aside those outward sins, not just laying aside the inward sins, laying aside the good deeds as well. We have to take our eyes off our own imperfect, incomplete work and rest in the finished work of Jesus. It's like that hymn says, cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete Simply trust the work of the Son. And finally, Jesus calls us to simply trust the love of the Father. I think there's something we can all relate to, right? Love. Um, We all need love. Uh, It's how we were created. My wife, Holly, and I have been watching season two of the Netflix show, The Crown. I'm not going to give you any spoilers here. Um, But in season one, you might have started to feel this. It's been out for over a year, so I can talk about season one, right? Um, I won't give away too much, but the crown is about Queen Elizabeth. And it's not her whole life, uh, but it contains most of her her royal life, at least up, up to this point. And you might have had some conflicting thoughts about Elizabeth's sister, Margaret. Margaret is very uh, brash in your face. She's basically the opposite of Elizabeth. But in the end, I think you, you might start to feel for Margaret. And my wife said, I actually feel sad for her now because all she wants is to be loved. God knows that 
we need to be loved. And so he gives us his love, right? And it's not just in the form of an emotion. It's not just in words. It's in the form of a person. So verse 16, which some of you might be familiar with. Maybe you memorized it when you were younger. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me forget verse 17, though, which says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So again, Nicodemus's mind has to be spinning at this point, right? Okay, God not only loves his people, the Jews whom he called out, but he loves the world? Are you kidding me? The entire cosmos? God's son didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world? If I were Nicodemus, I would probably think those same thoughts. You sure about that, Jesus? You seen these pagans around me? You see what these guys do? These unclean Gentiles? Jesus is saying, yes, I see them. I created them. And I love them. So the Father's gracious gift of His Son is not just for this elite group of humans who have figured out how to live right. Or even those from the line of Abraham, which may have been to Nicodemus's chagrin. God's gift is for all the world. All the believing ones, Jesus says, no matter where they've come from. And that, that's why Paul says in Romans 11, Gentiles are beloved. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, Paul says. It's impossible to fully grasp how deep and how high and how wide his love is. It makes no earthly sense, right? That God would be merciful to love sinners who have blatantly rebelled from him. And instead of thanking God for his provision, for his love and what he has done for us, how easy is it for us to complain about how he cares for us? I find myself with this attitude all the time. God, why isn't my salary a little bit higher? Why do we live in this house? It's too small. It's really cold and drafty. God, when are we really going to catch a break this season? I don't know what that is for you. It might be health. It might be career. It might be relationships. I don't want to minimize those things because desires, those inward desires are good but often we make them into ultimate things, right? And so when we don't get what we want, we often think, God must not love me. So we complain about what we face in this life, just like the Israelites complain about the food that they had, the way that God was sustaining them in the desert. But God leads us, like Psalm 36 says, to feast on the abundance of his house. He gives us drink from his river of delights. For with him is the fountain of life. So in our sin, we rebel, but in his love, he pursues. He brings those rebels home. Friends, the good news is that you are beloved by God in spite of your worst offenses and in spite of your best works through simply trusting him, you are found in the Son, the only begotten Son that He gave up. The sad reality, though, right, is that many will reject His love. 
Which is why Jesus ends with this warning in verse 19. And this is the judgment, he says. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The love of the Father is for all who trust him, but not all will trust him. And so... There is a warning here for those who are still in their unbelief. And at the same time, seeing this through the eyes of someone who looks to the lifted up Christ, we can read it as saying what Paul said in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, trust my love. Come out of the darkness and into the light. What do you need to bring into the light? What kind of baggage are you holding? I got a lot myself. I got to bring it into the light myself. All my sin and brokenness, all my imperfect good works, because Jesus has come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I read this tweet recently that Katy Perry sent out. Don't judge me. She said, I can't wait till Instagram culture is over so we can be ourselves again. She's right. The good news of the gospel, though, says we can be ourselves now. We don't need to be afraid of the dark. The perfect love of the Father casts out all fear, which means that our simple trust in the power of the Spirit, in the work of the Son, in the love of the Father leads to two things. One, humility, right? God's love for all the world. Younger brothers, prodigals, older brothers, self-righteous, older brothers like myself, all kinds of people, all kinds of sinners, without exception. And simple trust means that I can love like he loves. Because God's compassionate, merciful, loyal love begets compassionate, merciful, loyal love in us. It propels us out into the world to love like Jesus loves. And we see that with Nicodemus. After the crucifixion, John 19, Nicodemus, you probably know about this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, helping to bury Jesus. But what you might have missed in John 19 is that Nicodemus was there too. Nicodemus brought with him this very costly amount of, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to dress the body of Christ because Nicodemus got it. All those nights before when he was in that room at night with Jesus, he got it. The thing is that rich, morally clean Pharisees do not touch the body of dead people. That was woman's work back in the day. That was for the servants. Nicodemus got it. He proved that he trusted Jesus. He proved that the extravagant grace of the Father led him to extravagantly care for the body of Christ. He was walking in the light. Jesus says, or John says elsewhere, to walk in the light. That means living a life of faith and love. A life that doesn't grow independent of grace but leans even more into grace because we realize more and more 
that we need it. We need that transforming grace. That means that God is going to come in, just like he did with Nicodemus. When we lean into that grace, he's going to push further in and transform because his love is not passive. His love is active. It moves. It's fierce, right? Love the uh, Harry Potter uh, Patronus charm. This reminds me of that. If you don't know Harry Potter, that's okay. I've already proven I'm a dork, by the way, <laughs> in this sermon several times. But uh, Harry Potter, the Patronus charm, is a charm that casts away the dark dementors. The dark dementors that come to suck the life from you. And the Patronus charm bursts out into light. Jesus is that light shining in the darkness. We'll end with this beautiful story I read recently of a Duke theologian named Richard Hayes and his college friend Gary. Like I said, I'll end with this. It was 1989, and Gary was a gay man and dying of AIDS. And so Richard invited Gary to his home to enjoy one last time together. One last time to enjoy one another's company. And so they watched movies, they drank wine, they feasted, they talked theology even. Because the thing about Gary is that even though Gary had been gay his whole life, at least what he experienced, Gary was also a professing Christian. And so he struggled with same-sex attraction. And at the same time, he had come to believe that Jesus' followers cannot practice homosexuality. And so Gary, he wanted to talk more about this, this inward feeling. What do I do with this, Richard? I feel like I'm on the outside. I feel like I'm a castaway. I trust Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And yet this desire is in me. What do I do? And so he wanted to write this article with this theologian, Richard Hayes, uh, talking about that struggle together. And unfortunately, Gary died not long after his visit with Richard. And they were never able to write the article together. But before his death, Gary wrote these words. He said, since all, since all Saints Day, November 1st, I have felt myself being transformed. I no longer consider myself a homosexual. Many would say, big deal. You're 42, you're dying of AIDS, big sacrifice. No, I didn't do this of my own. Of an effort to improve myself, to make myself acceptable to God. No, he did this for me. I feel a great weight has been lifted off me. I don't know if you hear it in his words, but I do. Rebirth. Simple trust, even in the waiting, even in the groaning. It's what Advent's about, waiting and groaning and longing for Jesus to come again and make us whole. And so God's standing invitation for you today, this evening, is to come into the light. If you're like Gary and you struggle with your inward desires or you're like Nicodemus and you can't get past those good works, come into the light. Even if you're questioning, doubting, misunderstanding, stumbling into the light out of the darkness tonight. Come.
come into the light and sing these words from Audrey Assad. She says, Oh, happy fault that gained for me the chance to know you, Lord, to touch your wounded side and know the joy of my reward. I know, I know, and I believe that you are the Lord. I don't have a bullhorn today. It's probably good for you that I don't. So the thing is, I can't argue in, you into believing this. But my prayer is that God's spirit will blow into your heart so that you look to Jesus, the lifted up one, as your savior. And you can trust that the father's love has you. The father's love has you. So are you a skeptic? This is the truth that you never wanted, but you've always needed. And if you're a believer, return to that love. That's why we come to the table each week to return with glad, grateful hearts to the love of the Father who gives us that lifted up Son so that those who trust Him can eat of the bread of His life and drink from the promise of His grace and experience eternal, deep, lasting life. And so on the night the Lord Jesus was to be betrayed, He took the bread and He broke the bread and He gave thanks. He said, this is my body for you, take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. After the meal, he took the cup in the same way. He said, this is my blood of you.